0: Are we eating ourselves into extinction? Interesting thought, how many of us are aware that we used to consume 6,000 species of plants, but only nine remain staples today? When you consume a banana, are you aware that there are 1,500 different varieties? But due to global mass trade, we produce just one, the Cavendish.
1: We are seeing people living longer lives, but they are from a generation in which they didn't have as much processed, ultra-processed food as we have. There are six, 7,000 edible plants around the world. We now depend on mostly nine, of which three, the wheat, rice and maize, provide the world with more than 50% of its calories.
0: Dan Saladino is a journalist and presenter of the weekly food programme on BBC Radio 4, where he's been reporting on food and agriculture for the past 15 years. It's a great career for anyone who loves food and culture and it has shown him just how important and precious diversity is. His latest book, Eating to Extinction, explores stories of wild and endangered foods through the people and the land they came from and the traditions and the cultural identities they represent and why we need to save them. Dan highlights just how intertwined we are a species to our planet. Something which really resonated with me in this episode, and I'm very passionate about, is how we shouldn't be looking through one lens at the problems we're experiencing in our food system and the relationship this has on our health today. So get ready to hear some of the most fascinating short stories from all over the globe in Dan's 15 year career of food journalism. Dan Saladino, welcome to Live Well, Be Well. Thank you so much for being here today. It's good to be here. I know that you are a regular on the BBC Radio 4 programme, which I'm an avid listener to. I want to talk a bit more about your journey before we talk all about the importance of eating to extinction, Mm -hmm. which has been your latest book. And I know you've got another one coming out next year as well, which I'd love to touch upon. But before I start, I ask the same question to all of my guests, which is, what has been the one thing that you've changed your mind about in the last 10 years?
1: I think that must be the thing that is central to the argument in Eating to Extinction, which is that well, there's so many different ways in which we can consider food and how to choose food. And for many people, you know, it, it is about price or value. Some other people might think it's about calories. Or, and for me, the big message that came out of my research that has fundamentally changed the way I think about food it's diversity biodiversity in terms of biodiversity or actually the focus of the book agro biodiversity so agricultural biological diversity so it's a bit of a, a tangle of words but um and then diversity uh translated from that into how we eat so I think um Diversity is key and the emerging science in how we farm and also our health, uh, which I'm sure we'll get on to. Uh, diversity is now, it's my mantra really, is to think about food, diversity, the benefits to us and the benefits to the planet.
0: I couldn't agree with you more because I think that's also probably been one of my things I've changed mm-hmm. my mind on in the last 10 years is actually the importance of diversity in my research for my diet and now through hosting this podcast and speaking to a lot of people on planetary terms, understanding the opossum diversity in our crops. And that's something that I know that you speak a lot about in the monoculture terms of crops mm, as well. Mm. So we're going to definitely dissect that today. Mm. Um, but before we do, you spent a lot of your childhood summers with your grandmother in Sicily.
1: My in a town called Ribera, which is in the southwest of Sicily. And so if you Picture Palermo in the north, head straight down, and you uh, come to uh, the province of Agrigento, which is where the famous Greek temples are. Mm -hmm. Uh, But not too far from there is a town that very few tourists would ever find. And Ribera is also called the uh, City of Oranges. It's a town, but the name is City of Oranges. So it's an agricultural town. And that is where I used to travel, often on my own as well, when my parents were working in the summer, uh, to stay with my nonna. And my Italian, uh, more importantly, my Sicilian dialect wasn't too good. So I arrived, would sit around a table and there'd be all this shouting and noise and people being so expressive. Uh, and I thought, well, is the family feud underway <laughs> <laughs> or something? It just turns out they were arguing about the meal and where to buy, where you could find the best pastry or, or bread, for example. So that was a an immersion into a completely different relationship with food going from at the time... The relatively black and white um, food culture, mm-hmm. I would argue, of Britain in the 1970s and 80s to one in which um, and I describe it in the book as the kind of MGM Technicolor experience of landing in Sicily. And it's like Dorothy in the Wizard of Oz going from the black and white into the into the color. And it was also the place where I managed to, I guess, walk through a farm for the first time and see oh, wow. trees. uh full of oranges and also vineyards. Um, and I think that must have had such a profound impact on me, subconsciously as well, because it's not as if I thought, well, I want to be a farmer or I, I you know, want to one day grow up to be a food journalist. But it just gave me a diff- completely different insight into food and farming. Immediately, as soon as I started the food program, was this um, sense of food traditions, mm. And an awareness quite early on, because of the people I, I I met during program making, that they were concerned about what was disappearing, that they believed that there was greater uh, homogeneity in, in food and farming. And I then discovered that there was even a catalogue of endangered foods that had been created by the slow food movement in the 1990s called the Ark of Taste. So... The Noah's Ark, effectively, of taste, which has grown to a catalogue of five, more than 5,000 foods from 150 different countries. And the idea being simply that if you place a story of an endangered food in this catalogue, at least you can act on that story, that Mm. you can only save something from extinction or from being endangered if you know that it's at risk. Mm -hmm. And so I fell in love with this catalogue. I made many different radio programs about these endangered foods from different parts of the world each one because it was a specific story took me to a different place introduced me to communities obviously showed me a specific food and its flavours and its history and also that that question of why was it disappearing and the probably the most important question of all why should we care and this is um, when I was asked to write a book. Um, that was immediately my response to say, if I am going to write a book, this is the subject matter. I didn't quite know what the narrative was going to be, but I knew that there was an argument that need to be needed to be presented that these endangered foods weren't just quaint parts of our food history mm-hmm. that just be consigned to the past. I I, I felt there was something really important for the future as well. Mm. And that's why I spent uh, 15 years collecting stories with the Food Programme, and then three years doing more research and writing to make a case for these endangered foods, these traditions, and ultimately diversity.
0: Mm. So many questions there. I wanna follow on with, Mm. and I'm gonna break it down into two parts. Mm -hmm. Now, I really wanna talk about why it matters and the diversity of our food and our crops matters. But I also want to talk about the extinction side of it, because we hear a lot about animals becoming extinct. And we see a lot of programs around climate change and things that we're about to lose, but we've very rarely talk about the foods, as you just mentioned there. Why do you think that is? Why do you think we're not more aware or we're not as communicative around that subject of the foods that we're losing, mm. which is critical to our health and well-being, yeah. um, as well as the gr- ever-growing popul- population that we've got? Why do you think we're not talking about that as much?
1: It's a great question. And I think if you if, if you also think that the word biodiversity, that was that wasn't really used in mainstream conversations about the um, the health of the planet or even our health as well so I think biodiversity is a relatively recent addition to uh, you know awareness so, uh, uh, about uh, planetary issues and I think therefore food diversity uh, agricultural biolog- biological div- diversity there's absolutely no reason why that would have been something that people would have been um, aware of so mm. I think I think um, it's it's really interesting that Um, biodiversity has become a big issue uh, and rightly so I don't quite understand how that came to uh, such prominence so quickly and uh, you know because it's been a it's been a a major issue for for centuries in a way or at least during post the industrial revolution in which we started to change landscapes rapidly and extensively as well Um, so and again, that, that point that I mentioned, that our relationship with food, particularly um, after the Industrial Revolution in Britain, and if we just stick to the, stick to the British mm. experience for now, after the process that unfolds in the late 18th century and into the 19th, um, and the rapid urbanisation of, of Britain at that time, c- creating a disconnect between the land and people, uh, and the need to change the food system to feed growing populations in cities who were mostly factory workers, mm-hmm. that was one major event that com- completely changed our relationship with, with nature mm-hmm. and also with, with food and farming. Then if you think First World War, Second World War, huge amounts of disruption again, and particularly after the Second World War, this attempt, not just in the UK, but also across Europe, to, to really ramp up the production of what effectively, which is calories. So we, we created a food production system that was based on uh, producing enough energy to keep people alive and stave off hunger. And mm. in some cases, in the extreme cases, famine yeah. as well. So, um, and then once you create that system, based on the available science and technology we had at the time, uh, which, which I, I think you've touched on in previous Uh, editions about this reductionist approach Mm -hmm. to to science and technology. So it showed us, it gave us these breakthroughs to almost reinvent the way we produce food and diets as well, but we didn't have the full picture. And and we're now beginning to understand the complexity of what we lost and the diversity that we depended on for millennia as a species as well. And so after the Second World War with, um, I guess, famously the so-called Green Revolution, where we transform farming around the world. And on one level, it's successful because mm. it does produce huge amounts of food. But again, in the 21st century, with, with a new wave of science, it's showing us what we've missed. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the key arguments I wanted to get across in the book, that there are foods and f- uh, food systems and farming techniques that were developed over thousands and thousands of years. That became our inheritance, mm. uh, and in different parts of the world, because they were adapted to different ecosystems and environments, and soils and climates and altitudes, and so on, with and cultural preferences as well about what people wanted to eat and the flavors mm. they were, um, they, they they preferred as well. Um, and we we lost so much of that, and we now have so many challenges around the world when it comes to energy, fossil fuel dependence, uh, and, and how how. Important that has become as a prop for so much of our food production, which cannot go on. Um, we have climate change, which is causing huge amounts of disruption already to farming and food. And so we need we need the kind of adaptations um, that exist around the world. So crops, for example, that might be resistant to certain pests um, or you know types of wheat or maize or rice that can tolerate more saline soils or or lack of water. So all of that diversity was lost because we chased productivity and yield. Mm. And that has ended up as a now obviously fragile system. Uh, Here we are, we have war in Europe. uh, And it, it almost revealed to us in a brutal way how fragile the supply chains are because so much of the same food is produced in one region of the world. Mm-hmm. So again, it's diversity all the way, diversity of crop genetics, diversity of different food and farming systems, diversity of supply chains as well. Mm. So that's that's how we got here. Mm-hmm.
0: I think that's such a, a great argument because it's really looking at it in silo and that reductionist idea. I think it comes up in most conversations now that I'm having on this podcast on whatever form we're talking about, the reductionist topic seems to always come up because we're starting to now see just how multifaceted and how entwined everything is. Like how just entwined we are with our planetary Earth, with one another, and and, and especially as you highlighted, especially with the war currently going on, that that's also being very apparent in in many of its problems that's created mm. even for us
1: yeah. here and in the th- UK. And, and there's a non-food and farming person I mentioned in introduction to the book, uh, who who has a he's a physicist he's an expert in networks human and natural uh, or, or ones found in nature uh, Al- Albert uh, Laszlo Barabasi based in Boston and uh, uh, he uh, describes this reductionist approach in his book uh, Linked um, which is about everything is connected to everything else and what it means. Uh, for us, but and he has this amazing um, quote, which is convinced by our own cleverness, we believed we were capable of deciphering nature in all its complexity and then overriding it. And again, we now know so much more than the people who embarked on the journey of crop breeding science at the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th. We also know far more uh, than nutritionists who devised diets after the Second World War. You know, just to mention the gut microbiome as one of those ex- exciting new frontiers of, of science. And so that reductionist approach, that uh, deciphering nature in a, an extremely simplistic way, um, we're, we're, it's an exciting time because we mm. can now, I I argue, redesign the future food system based around this complexity and this diversity.
0: We're definitely going to come on to your thoughts on what you think that should be um, in just a moment. But I'd love to, before we do, what have we... This is coming from a food journalism side, maybe as well, of what have we lost in the terms of the flavor of our food, from how it's now being produced? Because we must have lost so much from earlier moments before the Industrial Revolution mm. of the terms of the flavor and the quality of that food. What have we what are you seeing that's the most apparent in that yeah. in that term?
1: The approach I take in, in the book is to take these specific stories. And tell those specific stories and then draw out some bigger truths from them. And the one that um, your question uh, leads me to is, is one in a section, uh, in the early section of the book called Wild, where before um, I move into the agricultural era of human history and food and the first farmers 10, 12,000 years ago, I talk about the fact that our most successful lifestyle to date has been, has been as hunter-gatherers. So if you think two million years of bipedal humans, um, you know, ten thousand years is a blip, really. So we we are living through an agricultural experiment, and we are the guinea pigs, really. Mm. But in the wild section, I I travelled to uh, northeastern India, uh, to the region called Meghalaya, uh, or Megalia, as 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 many people call it, and there I. Um, spent some time with the Kasi people, and there are indigenous people in that part of India who still live among the wild citrus trees, the wild oranges, and and, and this is the area also because it intersects with what is today southwestern China uh, um, and Myanmar as well. We think this is where the ancestors of all citrus evolved, and mind-blowing to think that there are still people living among the wild citrus uh, trees, and they have a cultural preference for bitterness and sourness, which is exactly what these ancestral fruits have lots Mm. of, and they're part of uh, religious ceremonies. For example, they're used as medicine. And again, citrus features quite large in in Chinese uh, um, medicinal tradition. As well, ancient textbooks refer to the use of oranges and other other types of citrus and what did we do in the 20th century well we we took these citrus fruits um well actually goes for further back than just the last hundred years so we've been on a mission in recent centuries in in terms of fruit breeding to take these bitter and sour fruits which many people prefer and we made the fruit bigger fleshier and sweeter Mm -hmm. so we we bred out the, the sourness and the bitterness. And what's fascinating is that those chemical compounds, they are the plant's defence mechanisms, and they are beneficial to us as well. And not only did we breed out the bitterness, the, the defence mechanisms, we then had these sweet fruits that we had to spray with chemicals to defend them against pests. And so, in a sense, that that history and the origins of, of that, globally important fruit show us that it's not just the diversity that's been disappearing but also because of our the way our palates have been changed the tastes have been disappearing as well and are on on, and and and, uh, in in many cultures and i would include you know western industrialized economies sweetness has obviously overwhelmed bitterness and sourness at a cost uh, and that's our health And the planets, when you think about the farming systems that we've now devised.
0: It's so interesting, because as you're talking about that, I'm thinking, you know, over the last 200 years, we are living longer, but we aren't living healthier. Mm. And that is, we used to die from infectious diseases. So now we've got modern medicine to come around, but now we're actually dying from non-communicable diseases. So we're not dying from infection, but what's killing us Mm. is our lifestyles. And when I'm just hearing you talk about that story and I'm now thinking, well, two thirds of our baskets are full of ultra processed foods. So we're overnourished, but we're actually nutrient deficient because the foods we're consuming aren't available with the real foods that actually we need and that you're talking about. But then we're looking at developing countries mm. and they also really suffer with the burden of, of malnourishment. And so we have these two ends of the spectrum where our food systems aren't working for either end. We're over-nourished but undernourished, mm. or we're malnourished and malnourished, and we're still deficient. So where do you see act- yeah. actually the food system is completely broken down, in my view?
1: And I think that's a really important point to make about the fact that the diseases that are now are linked very much to, to food and diets. Mm. And in a sense, we are, li- we are seeing people living longer lives, but they are from a generation in which they didn't have as much processed ultra-processed food as we have. So we, where our generation, or where my generation, where your generation and others, um, yeah, how, how that will play out, I don't know. But uh, there was a doctor, um, Dennis Burkett, mm-hmm. who in the 1950s and 60s spent a lot of time in Africa and came up with this concept of Western diseases because he was starting to see the rise of, you know, obesity, diabetes, uh, other food-related illnesses in British patients, mm. completely absent from the patients he was treating in Africa, um, who were obviously dying um, from other causes um, that were of concern, uh, by, as you say, infectious diseases or um, uh, you know, uh, uh, poor water, access to water, for example, um, but they were not dying from um, these food-related illnesses. And his, his conclusion at the time was, well, it's all about fiber. You know, the fiber has, has been lost from... This is when, in the 1950s. 1950s, yeah, yeah. And this fiber has been is, is lot, has been lost from um, you know, modern diets, and that's a problem. And at, the, at, at that point, he had no idea. Or we didn't know, obviously, about the gut microbiome, for example. So for him, fiber was, it was seen as a way of getting rid of toxins and flushing out the body, mm-hmm. whereas actually now we have the science to understand that yeah, I mean, there are many things in um, the diets of the patients he was seeing in Africa um, that were, were becoming absent from diets in in uh, certainly in, in the UK and uh, other parts of Europe as well. And in the book, in that wild section, I also spend some time with the Hadza uh, hunter-gatherers mm. in Tanzania. And I was lucky enough to travel there and visit with um, Professor Tim Spector. Uh, who was there testing the gut microbiome of of the Hadza hunter gatherers, and they have a potential menu of eight hundred different plant and animal species, huge amounts of diversity. And when Tim tested their gut microbiomes, realised that they had um, microbes that were now extinct from Western populations. What their cause are, what their function is, we don't we don't quite know. But what we know is that they had a far more diverse gut microbiome, and when Uh, archaeologists dig up bog bodies for example so amazingly preserved um, humans um, they can go into the gut and there's one uh, called tolland man two and a half thousand years old discovered in a peat bog in denmark in the 1950s and his gut contained the seeds of 40 different plants huge amounts of diversity so we know we evolved and depended on Diversity. We know that that's rapidly been disappearing from diets post the Industrial Revolution. And we actually even designed a a modern farming system based around uniformity with the Green Revolution crops, these high yielding wheats and rices and maize and and so on. And whereas there are six, seven thousand edible plants around the world, we now depend on mostly nine of which three, the wheat, rice and maize, provide the world with more than 50 percent of its calories. And that's a staggering change Mm. from this wonderful level of diversity that can still be found in contemporary hunter-gatherers, thoroughly modern human beings opting to live a hunter-gatherer lifestyle, bog bodies, and now the emerging science that is pointing us to the fact that the more diverse our diets, the more diverse our gut microbiomes, the more beneficial that is for our physical and mental health. So the book is really a call to say... These traditional farming systems, which were full of diversity, are ones which we can be inspired by and not go back, but Mm. to actually use them as an inheritance and a resource to build a future food system using 21st century science and technology.
0: So what are your thoughts on the future of the food system currently? Because there's so many new concepts coming out, such as these vertical farms, which is quite a big one. Um, lab-grown meat mm-hmm. now. So that's obviously having a huge rise at the moment because we're trying to reduce our meat consumption, but trying to get billions of people to switch to a plant-based diet overnight mm-hmm. can be quite hard. So now there's these new technologies coming out of lab-grown meat. What's your thoughts on these new concepts that are coming up? Because as I'm hearing you talk, for me... The realization is, well, we just really need to go back to actually looking at regenerative farming, Mm. making sure that our crops are more diverse, actually impacting and working with the farmers. But we're creating a lot of new technologies at the same time. So Mm. what's your thoughts on actually, are these the correct routes to go down? And are these lab-grown meats actually going to be as impactful for our gut? Because they, again, they're made in a factory, they're processed. They're not from real foods. So, what's your thoughts on this future concept of currently where we're heading yeah. in our food system? And, and again,
1: I have a, a, a kind of holistic approach to kind of assessing these new new approaches. And I'm, not, I'm nothing against, as I hopefully as I hope has come across, science and technology. And let the research continue. The problems I have are one, uh, I guess, corporate capture. So, mm. if you think about the the, the, the Modern food system we have today, created after the Second World War, has led to a concentration of power, which means that, for example, um, one of the, the foundations of the food system, Seeds, um, is mostly in the control of just four global corporations. Poultry production, for example, three genetic lines globally owned by two corporations. 50% of the world's cheeses uh, contain starter cultures or enzymes produced by one single company. So I think the problem with a lot of these new alternative proteins, for example, the people who or the businesses involved in the modern uh, meat industries, livestock production on a Mm. vast scale around the world are the very same companies that are investing in some of the alternative um, meat products as well. So the ADMs and the Cargills of the world. Secondly, um, I do wonder whether the kind of complexity that I've Described can be transferred into these new foods. So, Albert Barabasi, for example, who I mentioned with his lab in um, Boston, he is embarking on a, on, a, on a really ambitious food project. It's called the Dark Matter of Nutrition. Uh, and I think the argument goes that we uh, can track around 150 chemical compounds at the moment. That's what uh, people in the food industry can do in, in analyzing products. Um, he argues there are 26,000, you know, in so within a in, within a carrot or a piece of garlic, for example, thousands and thousands of chemical compounds that we have no idea what what their function is or, in fact, how they interact with the other chemical compounds within the same food or the other foods we eat mm. or, in fact, with our gut microbiome. So to think that in a lab, you can recreate that level of complexity from um, a crop grown in healthy soil and then <laughs> unfathomable co- complexity um, that, that takes place when we, when we bite into one of those foods as well. And we've talked about the gut microbiome. Amazing research underway into, into the soil microbiome as well. So A lot. A lot, yeah. And so the, 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 there are researchers at the Royal Botanic Gardens in Kew, for example, and obviously my, my focus has been so much on lost diversity of crops. So in, in some of the seed banks around the world, although farmers might grow you know, t- around um, or g- be given a choice of around 10 varieties of modern wheats, which are genetically uniform, um, seed banks contain more than 200,000 mm. uh, uh, varieties sourced from different parts of the world, each one adapted to different conditions, but also each one might have a different nutrient Profile and and the same goes for rice as well. My focus has been on those varieties. It turns out that there are researchers looking at the interaction between those varieties, where they came from originally in the world, and the unique soil microbiome that existed uh, with them, and in in and the way in which that they co-evolved to the point where the soil microbiome maximized the productivity and the fertility to produce. Um, you know grains or, or whatever um, and high yielding as mm. well. We can't we can't go back in time so that's a, that's lost to us. but it could be there's a whole level of productivity in plants that we are only just being able to glimpse into because of this new research of the soil microbiome in combination with genetically diverse crops. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, we we had the science in the 20th century to produce synthetic fertilizers and irrigation and new crop genetics. But it could be there's something far more complex that was developed over thousands of years of farming that we can tap into, analyze with new science. Um, And so, yeah, it's those two main issues really Um, concentration of power because the technology is expensive and in very few hands and also are we going to miss out on the complexity that we now need uh, when it comes to our health
0: it really brings me on there actually to my next question which is food fashion trends just from leading on to that because i'm kind of thinking about the diversity of foods that you're talking about but in the last 10 years specifically and i started in nutrition about eight years ago before it was topical, before it was that trendy, trying to bang on people's doors to understand you know, the importance of nutrition. And now, thankfully, everyone's talking about it. Everyone's talking about our health and how we can improve it and the benefits that food can bring. But with that has come a lot of trends. And so you're thinking about, you know, I think there was one stat that I was reading even a few years ago, that millennials now spend more money on avocado toast and brunch at the weekends than they do going on holiday. All of their extra mm. spending is going into brunching, which eight years ago wasn't terminology we'd use in the UK. Mm. Then we're looking at kale. And I remember kale come up on the rise of massaging kale. And my father saying, well, that's a porpoise food. You know, all of these new food fashion trends that are mm. kind of coming to the vicinity of us, thinking that they're beneficial, plant-based milks that's got a huge kind of ethical Mm. barrier there as well. We're thinking we're doing quite good for our health, but actually when we're looking at a a fuller picture and not the reductionist view that we've been highlighting today, do we think they're as beneficial as we think they are? Because I think we can pull these food fashion trends in quite quickly, but actually what's the bigger picture there? And I think that's something that Mm. I'm very interested in as a nutritionist.
1: Well, the bigger picture, and I think there are many people far more qualified than I am who've made the argument there is no such thing as a superfood. There really isn't. And I think the idea of those two words uh, joined together, food and fashion, um, yeah, I, I fundamentally disagree with with kind of that whole relationship we've ended up with. Um, if you think that in the 19th century, the banana was the equivalent of the avocado, that people were amazed and full of awe and wonder, at this, these flavors and the, the appearance of this fruit that they hadn't seen before. And then we designed monocultures in which we could move that fruit from a you know, tropical part of the world, and for it to become one of the cheapest ingredients in a, in a supermarket. Mm. The avocado is just yet another one uh, of, of those foods in, in, that, in that long history, and the impact, you know, in terms of farming systems and, and loss of biodiversity, is huge, because to, to meet that demand, there are now vast monocultures. Um, of avocado and again fitting that pattern that i've mentioned of there are many different tens of if not hundreds of varieties of avocado uh, and we are very you know we get access to the commodity avocado um so as there are with the banana 1500 different types of banana there's one globally traded banana the cavendish which is grown in these vast monocultures clonally propagated so it's not grown from seed it's grown from the the roots or the suckers so they are clones, and and um, avocados as well, genetically uniform crop grown in vast monocultures, um, demanding huge amounts of water. And uh, yeah, I mean I, I love avocados, but again, complexity and the diversity of diets is far more important than focusing on one in specific ingredient.
0: Mm. I mean, I do find it fascinating that I don't know if you've seen it, but the Netflix series called Rotten. Mm-hmm. And apparently all the drug cartels in, in Mexico now are taking over the avocado farmers because it's more lucrative money-wise than mm. it is to sell drugs of cocaine. Yeah. And then we start seeing a bigger problem, which is, again, the reductionist well, idea it's, of it's this it's a demand.
1: Global, it's a commodity in the same way that, I, I guess, coca is in the Americas, you know. So mm-hmm. wherever you have a valuable commodity that can be traded to different parts of the world, you, you will end up with, you know, economies and communities being distorted by that Mm -hmm. trade um and i I just think it makes no sense nutritionally to single out or focus on a small handful of so-called superfoods which are um, obviously healthy delicious in many cases um but uh my book is showcasing so many other amazing things that have fallen into decline that are just wonderful. I mean, there's a story of a lentil in southern Germany, one of the most delicious things I've, I've tasted, one of the most humble as well, went extinct in the 1960s. And a farmer single-handedly went to seed banks to bring back this lost lentil. And now 200 farmers are growing it. And, you know, if you think about legumes disappearing from European diets, mm. one of the things that we really could bring back that's beneficial to the soil, to the planet, to our health as well, and affordable. Mm. So in terms of the cost of living crisis... Um, yeah, this that kind of diversity. And there's so many different diverse types of peas and beans that we could all be eating uh, alongside, you know, the occasional avocado.
0: So you've mentioned the fact that we used to consume 6,000 different types of There meat. are
1: 6,000 edible plants edible around plants, the world. yeah But yeah. now
0: we're down to nine. Nine and
1: mostly three provide us with the majority of our calories, yeah.
0: I think it's just so much more there also about the care and mm. the care and the culture around that. It is a real process, isn't it? And mm-hmm. I think, you know so many of us today and and it's not that i'm saying i'm any better but you know we live on such a fast-paced environment Mm. so many added stresses it's just to hear that process there's something very therapeutic and Mm. calming about it as opposed to hitting a you know a a quick food delivery to your door which becomes that convenience factor and so much about what you're talking about is kind of creating that environment where the time is then put in to actually make it more of a not just an experience, but mm. actually just part of our lifestyles.
1: The, the book is about food and farming, but I would argue it's about so much more. I mean, it's a long. It tells the history of us and the way we've survived, the ways in which we've survived as you know diverse populations around the world, you know, and also that that deeper relationship with nature and our planet. So yeah, it is about food, but actually, it's about so much more. And it's just, I, it it certainly provoked in me the question of the 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 roads we've been on, the, the paths we've been on as mm. homo sapiens, and there are so many other ways that it could have gone. And in a sense, if you look back, and as you say, the relationship, the slower and more meaningful relationship with understanding that we depend on nature, mm. we, just, we depend on those animals as well. And yet we now in the 21st century, we're so disconnected. Very few of us can actually see that.
0: I know that's the really sad part of it, isn't it? Mm. And I kind of I feel there's a lot of hope with conversations more coming to the forefront, which I think is fantastic. But before I actually lead to my one of my final questions, I really want to ask you, where is one of the most inspiring places you've been to? Because I feel just through your stories of traveling, Mm. I feel like you can go travel journalism very soon, but just from hearing your stories of where you travel, the people you've met, the cultures you've experienced. Where is the most poignant memory of your mind of where you've travelled to, where you've been?
1: Albania. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I travelled there to in search of a cheese, a mountain cheese, because I wanted to, uh, to understand the origins of cheese making. And again, it's that idea that those early farmers who could grow crops could grow crops and uh, store grain and so on. But uh, it's amazing how humans were able to then reach less um hospitable places hmm. such as mountainous areas and survive and they did that as with the faroe islands by taking animals up into the pasture and converting the energy from the sun and the nutrients from the soil into a liquid that could then be concentrated into this protein that could then be you know, brought back after the summer to the village for people to survive and one of the places where you can still find that Tradition, that culture, and those skills is in the northern mountainous area of Albania, and that's where I traveled to. And um, people clinging on to that tradition uh, because this was one of the most isolated, closed off countries during the Cold War. Mm. So, under a dictatorship, everything was controlled. All of the food production was controlled. So, whether it was the type of apples that could be grown, or the types of cheeses that Mm. were produced, everything. Was under complete control, and so there, in these pockets in the in the mountainous area, there were people who still kept those skills and that that, that knowledge, even though it was illegal cheese making, effectively. And I travelled there and I saw how some of the prisons that had been created under the dictatorship um, for the political prisoners, uh, some of them were being used for food production areas now, and in and, and one of them was almost like a. Um, Uh, uh, this wonderful kind of storage area for it's like a cheese cave um and um somebody um said to me um that when diplomats are sent to albania they cry twice they they cry once when they're told they're going to albania because (laughs) it doesn't look or seem like the most attractive place and then they cry the second time when they leave because it's such a beautiful place landscape people and If you know where to look, wonderful food culture. And I cried when I left Albania because it's such a such a moving experience being there and meeting the people who are saving these traditions. And that's why I think the book, it does explain how we got here and also the challenges and the problems we face. But it's also full of heroes, Mm. people who are saving these endangered foods, Mm. including the cheesemakers in Albania. Um, And so that would be the place. But don't tell too many people, because I think let's try and keep it kind of low key. And uh, but yeah, wonderful place.
0: Albanian tourism just shoots up after this podcast. <laughs> but talking about that and the future of our food systems, who is pioneering the way in this? Who can we look to to actually help us redevelop these food systems to where they need to be to reduce the extinction, but to also work with increasing our well-being, increasing our health, mm. reducing non-communicable diseases because the food we're eating is so much more full of, full of nourishment and nutrients and care. Who is pioneering the way in the food system currently and who we should be looking to?
1: I went to China uh, to look at the origins of rice and and met a farmer who was the, the last farmer in his region to save a traditional type of rice, red-tipped rice. R- red rice is the origins of, kind of the, the, the pre-domesticated rice. And um, I was thinking, "How on earth are you making a living and selling your rice?" there are, there's hardly anyone out here. Uh, and this guy in his 70s took out his phone and showed me his this WeChat app, and he was selling his rice to people in Beijing and Chengdu and elsewhere. So I think modern technology, including our phones, can make us can turn us into co-producers. Mm. instead of being passive customers of food businesses and companies, we can be actively helping and assisting you know, cheesemakers, wheat growers to help diversify the food system and to be customers giving them confidence to do so.
0: Well, leaving on my last question then, which I'm quite interested to to know what you'll say to this is, Dan, what does live well, be well mean to you? If you can sum it up in a short sentence.
1: Well, I guess it's very much about uh, knowing the story of how we got here as in, in terms of food. And I think living well, being well um, can only really happen if you understand how we evolved and how we've survived as a species in this amazing ingenuity of humans in different parts of the world to take these kind of natural um, you know, uh, resources and transform them into something that is you know, good for good for us, beneficial uh, on so many different levels, and in, in, again including the planet. So I think you can only live well, be well by knowing the story.
0: Mm. I love that. And that's what you're doing through all of your books mm. is sharing these sort of stories. And I just want to note before you go that it's eating to extinction yeah. that is available now in America and coming through Europe and in the UK, where people can go to Amazon mm. or probably their favorite bookstore, mm. independent bookstore actually, maybe I say. Yeah.
1: So you can say live well, be well and eat reading to extinction. Uh, there the... we
0: go. <laughs> that that's how you're living well, being well, is through learning the knowledge and the education through your mm. books. And they um, can catch you also on the BBC for programme.
1: BBC Radio 4, the food programme, uh, weekly, 52 weeks a year. So uh, and, and an archive uh, full of hundreds of programmes.
0: Fantastic. Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been fascinating to speak to you.
1: And thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Live Well, Be Well. I really hope you enjoyed this episode and if you did please can I ask one huge favour if you could subscribe share and rate this podcast it would mean an immense amount to me and all the fantastic guests who come on to share their expertise and knowledge with us it will keep this podcast growing and it will allow us to continue making episodes until next week I hope you all live well and be well